0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and committed to bringing you ideas and resources that will build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening. If you want to be a nonprofit leader, or maybe just more effective in the role you're in now, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would, do me a favor, find that share button. Usually it's within the graphic around the logo for this episode in the device in which you're listening. And you can hit the dots and find a way to forward it to someone else who would really benefit from this episode and the conversation with Holly Welch-Stubbing. And it was a fantastic conversation with Holly, who brings experience as the president and CEO of E4E Relief, which is a nonprofit providing disaster and hardship grants around the world and, in fact, managed over $100 million in grants in 2020 alone. Not only does Holly bring great leadership lessons that you're going to benefit from, but she has expertise in legal and tax matters, and she's been involved in nonprofit and charitable policy work on a global scale. And of course, her years in community foundation leadership, as well as her personal involvement on nonprofit boards and as a fundraiser, that combination is going to give you lots to think about and certainly take away from this conversation. In particular, as you can see from the title of this episode, Holly really understands at a deep-rooted level both sides of the equation between nonprofits and corporations who both want to work together and she's going to help us unpack it and understand both what the corporations are looking for as well as what you can do to better position your nonprofit organization for such a partnership. Hey, and that's not all we talked about. Uh, We also got into cybersecurity for nonprofits, staff and board development, as well as fundraising in general. So lots of topics that you're going to benefit from, and I know you'll enjoy this conversation. More reason as well to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 134. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Holly and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work she's doing through E4E and fantastic funds like the Brave of Heart Fund, which is also included in the show notes. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Go to the homepage and you can find links to all of the social media platforms on which we are in constant communication. And, of course, we'd love to make sure you are on our email list so you can get notification of episodes just like this one and other free resources we're producing all the time. Also on the bottom of the homepage of the PattonMcDowell.com website, there's an opportunity to connect with us. Uh, literally, you can schedule a conversation with me, and we can talk about your nonprofit organization or perhaps your personal journey to nonprofit leadership and see if perhaps a coaching or training or maybe one of our unique mastermind programs might be right for you. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Holly Welch Stubbing. Holly, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: Hey, I'm so glad to be here, Patton. I'm really excited about our talk today.
0: Uh, I'm excited as well. You've had a fantastic career in philanthropy and community leadership, and and you've got things on your mind, frankly, that I know are going to be of interest to our listeners who are current nonprofit leaders or they want to be nonprofit leaders. And I know you have a perspective they will value. And in fact, you could have gone in any number of directions, Holly. Why did you choose community philanthropy and the leadership that you have ultimately assumed?
1: Well, Patton, I knew from an early age that I wanted to do something meaningful. My mom was a nurse, both a nurse and a practicing attorney. And I watched her struggles as a litigator and how the practice was changing over the years, but also sort of watched this, um, you know, dedicated community purpose she had in her nursing work and the way that she, uh, cared for people over the years. And so. That combined with watching her try to do motherhood and litigation, uh, which was a tough mix, she's probably the reason that I went to law school. But she's also, you know, I think I wanted to apply it in a different way. And I came even as soon as my second year of law school started looking at um, tax exempt organizations, universities, foundations, um, you know, anything that was in this kind of social realm um, to apply the skill set I had. And so that's really how I ended up here. I, I certainly didn't think I would end up uh, at one organization for the number of years that I've been here. But it <laughs> right. changed, you know, so much over that time.
0: Well, it, it is a fantastic progression. Of course, we can talk about your tenure at the Foundation for the Carolinas and, of course, the exciting work you're doing now at E4E. But let me ask you a question. First, it, graduate education is often a question I get from aspiring nonprofit leaders. And clearly, your, your law degree, I'm guessing, has helped you at every step of the way. Is that fair?
1: yes i mean i think it's been you know it was pivotal to me getting the job at the foundation um i I worked for another foundation in tennessee so i worked there for two years and then i moved to foundation for the carolinas in 1998 but the there would i you know the technical skill required for the job was something that was a part of the mix you know so i wouldn't have been able to get the job without it but i think the um The long-term focus on growing the business and the strategy around how community foundations have changed over the years uh, certainly was a driver in thinking about education, you know, on and off over the course of that time. And I know you can relate to that personally since you, you too have thought about your journey in education and how important it is.
0: Yeah, you and I have had, in fact, that exact conversation, and it's impressive, not just your legal degree, but of course, you went on to pursue other degrees, at one at Georgetown that gave you another set of of education experience and perspective, and I guess it has led to what is a fascinating opportunity now with E4E, and it seems appropriate as we are now in the Thanksgiving season as this episode is released. Tell us, Holly, what is E4E? And I bet you have some good examples of some amazing acts of philanthropy.
1: Yes. Um, it is It is amazing how, you know, everything that I've done up to this point seems relevant for this organization right now. But e is a national provider of relief programs and a leading grant maker to individuals in crisis. We create charitable solutions for companies and communities to respond and provide financial assistance to people when they need it most. And simply put, we're in the business of providing well-being to those folks uh, after they have a uh, disaster or hardship.
0: Right, and it's given you a perspective and you and I've talked about this before. Obviously a lot of it I know there's the individual kind of beneficiaries you describe but that that fundamental relationship with the corporate community and for you it's a global corporate community and you know all of our friends in the nonprofit world they want to connect with their kind of corporate relations folks um what are the, some of the challenges you see as nonprofits try to connect with these corporate leaders?
1: You know, we see a lot of opportunities and challenges in working with companies. I'll start with opportunities. Opportunities are, to me, that corporations today more than ever before are seeing social impact in completely new ways. And they're starting to weave together their strategic uh, corporate social responsibility in ESG or environmental social governance practices with their philanthropy. And so I think this is really exciting because it's going to open up and has opened up new avenues of capital and investment for nonprofits. Um, I would say the key challenges in working with corporate America is just the sheer complexity of working with mid and large size companies. I would say they themselves are kind of organisms, if you will, that are trying to respond to the things around them and all of their stakeholders. And the corporation, you know, particularly in a post-COVID world, seems to have taken on a role of its own in society around social and public issues. So, when you're a nonprofit trying to build personal relationships and get your message out there, it can be so hard to be stacked up against others in your space and get the real time and space necessary to build relationships that are meaningful. I'd also say the amount of turnover and fluctuation in, you know, sort of org charts, and if you will, and roles. Yeah makes it hard to maintain consistent information flow about what your organization is doing. And you know when we talk about at foundations, we talk about investing in leaders. If you're investing in leaders, you're investing in people and then you're building relationships. And so if those things are changing all the time, priorities do change quickly.
0: That's something that you and I have talked about, and I was going to ask you about it, that the turnover, of course, we know exists on the nonprofit side. But I guess despite large corporate entities, often they have relatively small staff that are focused on some of this community philanthropy. Is that a fair statement? Yes, and they and
1: they move around a lot right now. I think there's a lot of change going on in the space. I think it's partly due to this idea of the environmental social governance factors and all of the things they're taking on you know, to measure their corporate social responsibility efforts. Um, And so that means new and different players, you know, moving things in and out of the organization, outsourcing some things. And so that makes it hard to, you know, maintain a consistent, you know, level of information flow with the organizations you're working with.
0: Have a relationship, right? I mean, just fundamentally, there's a lot of moving parts, as you have said, and
1: does seem to transcend a lot of things, you know, you can get past a lot of noise uh, with the right people in the right place with each other, you know, and so I think that's, that's one of the challenges that we see.
0: Well, and because you have a unique perspective on both sides of this philanthropic equation, you made a comment to me I thought was fascinating. Of course, we're featuring it as we think about this episode, you know, encouraging corporations to look at philanthropy differently. How can corporations look at philanthropy differently, given frankly the competing uh, agendas they are constantly having to manage?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, corporations are taking the tack of a lot of investment houses and how investment shops and private equity firms and others look at the leadership of companies. I think corporations and foundations are looking at the leaders of nonprofits, their funding, not necessarily just the programs anymore. Um, And so what what I like to see is companies that tie their, their operations programs and leadership together for funding streams instead of just thinking of an investment as a program thinking about investing in the team and having trust in that team, you know, because, you know, if you want to see the nonprofit sector evolve, they expect to, to to see some of the same tactics that corporations have had to bring to the table. They, they expect to see that with nonprofits as well as sort of market players, if you will. I don't know how fair that is, but I think it's just kind of the way it is because there's, they're under so much pressure Particularly the publicly traded ones, you know, to speak to the market on a regular basis. And you see some of those market facing things bleeding over into how corporations look at nonprofits.
0: Do the nonprofit leaders, I guess, need to, in some cases, speak that language? You know, I guess I as it, we think, think about it how can they do that, maybe?
1: I think it helps. I mean, I, I One of the reasons I mentioned the opportunity and the challenge in your in your prior question was just getting the sector um, ingrained in what they are doing is, to me, the best way of going in with your best position. If you understand their strategy, if you understand um, how they are positioning themselves and how their philanthropy um, either ties to the bottom line or does not, you know, you're always in a better position. When you know more about who you're going in to see, and that's true with a family foundation, you know, a major gift at $10,000 or or a corporation, you know, you want to do your research and know what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of information available on what these corporations are doing in the public realm. So, you know, that can be really useful in thinking about your program and how you're going to get things funded and where you sit in the organization.
0: Yeah, well put. And do your homework. Understand there can be alignment between the mission of that corporation and your nonprofit. And of course, Holly, I hear things, as I'm sure you do, that there there are different strategies. Uh, well, let's find opportunities for volunteer engagement for the employees of that company, or we need to get one of their senior people on our board. Have you right. seen tactics like that work, you know, better than others?
1: Yes. I mean, I definitely think, um, board leadership is essential to making connection and linkage, particularly in a city like Charlotte, that's growing by 65 people a day or whatever the number is, you know, it's a, it's a constantly evolving set of corporate leaders moving into and out of town. And so I think um, being hyper familiar with what they're doing, knowing, you know, do they have a corporate social responsibility report? Have you reviewed it prior to engaging with them or applying for grants I think if the company's publicly traded, there's a good chance there's a lot of information out on the web about how they, you know, what they've given to, how they what they care about. And those those things can be helpful, you know, but beyond doing the research to your point, it's then taking that to a deeper level and implementing a plan around relationship building uh, at the company, either through board board leadership or, you know, other maybe committees. I mean, there are other ways of getting people involved, not just for board slots.
0: Yeah, That's perfect. And what occurred to me, you know, Holly, you know, the Charlotte and the Carolinas philanthropic and corporate community better than anybody. As E4E now expands nationally and internationally, do you see consistent themes? Or are you finding that, you know, West Coast companies have a different approach to this kind of stuff versus the Northeast versus European or whatever? Or how do you juggle that kind of literally international diversity?
1: I do, I do see consistent themes. And I think if you think about, you know, how fortunate we are in Charlotte to have, you know, one of the largest banks in the world headquartered right here, you know, and a and a second one with, you know, thousands of employees um, with essentially an East Coast headquarters here, that type of thinking that we're talking about and seeing right now is is prevalent in the, you know. Fortune 500 set, if you will, in terms of what what they care about and what they're giving to. And again, one of the reasons that I'm mentioning this this ESG turn is because they're all, if you think about from the other side of the house, from their side of the house, they're getting tremendous pressure from pension and institutional investors to evolve their ESG practices. And that ESG practice is flowing through all the places where they engage with stakeholders, including nonprofits in the community. And that, I would say is less prevalent in Charlotte and more prevalent in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, but it, it, it is, it is growing and is certainly uh, very important for Bank of America and Wells Fargo.
0: And it underscores your point too, that if I'm a nonprofit leader, I need to understand what ESG is right. And understand their philosophies. So, so if I'm not even engaging at that level, the conversation is probably not going to go very far.
1: I think that's right. I think it's really good to have, um, an understanding of how it's changing both the investor space, like even your retirement account, you know, and the offerings you have and how things are done there all, you know, individually all the way up to um, how corporates organize themselves and what they're tracking um, and what, where they, where they see success.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. And again, I kind of, good instruction for, uh, I think sometimes we look at these corporate entities as simply as sources of revenue for our nonprofit. And we have to take a little deeper dive into this understanding so that we can be, you know, relevant in in their eyes, as well as, you know, the mission we have. Um, Holly, lots of activity and experience you've had uh, in terms of yourself, you volunteered, you served on board. So you understand uh, both sides, again, of this philanthropic equation. Uh, but one thing you mentioned to me that you uh, think nonprofits are not paying enough attention to is cybersecurity. Talk about mm-hmm. that. What? Why does that concern you? And frankly, what can we do about it if I'm a nonprofit I'm, leader?
1: I'm sure that you thought I had lost my mind when I said it. But I, <laughs> No, you know, I'm happy
0: to be reminded. If, yes. You
1: know, if you are spending a lot of time with corporations, you are spending a lot of time on this subject right now because they are inundated with with this. And so if you think about if corporations and governments are spending enormous amounts of money and time trying to figure out ways to protect themselves and mitigate their risks, what are nonprofits doing, you know, in that, in that realm? And so, you know, what I was proffering to you was that, you know, it probably would be best if nonprofits would pay attention to it because of the significant financial and data related risks to their organization. And I think when you're receiving funding from corporations, I'm guessing that over time you're going to start to see questions that pop up in grant applications and in other places where they expect to see organizations developing their cyber practices, you know, and in what in, just like you saw with Sarbanes-Oxley years ago, SOX, that ended up flowing through to grant, you know, grant-making documents and really looking at organizations' boards and practices and did you have a separate audit committee and some of the other governance things that came out of that that law. Um, here, I, I expect this to continue to evolve and i will say efree relief has spent considerable time and dollars bolstering cyber policies and practices and looking at our vendors who are providing services and their practices and we've done that in large part because corporate america is doing that as well Um, and so you know that's really why i mentioned it because you don't hear about it you know as much um, in the sector although i do think that you're hearing more and we do have, you know, I think one of the great things about Charlotte is that we live in a hub for all things fintech and cyber. Yeah. And so there's a tremendous amount of talent to pull from here and getting experienced volunteers on your board or a relevant committee uh, t- to tackle this issue. And we also have APARO, which has, I think, been done a, a great job of pulling together the top IT talent in terms of you know, just both CIOs, but also consulting resources that works with, with nonprofits on all things digital like this.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you lift up a par as an example. And also the example of, I guess, in whatever community your nonprofit exists, speaking of that corporate partnership, perhaps there is a, an example of how you could partner with them. They have yeah, talent. It could be right? a
1: seconded resource, you know, yeah. like, you know, going as far as some of the things the Bank of America has done where they've placed executives at an organization You know, CMS had the uh, chief human resources officer was from Bank of America for for a time, um, you know, to help evolve their practices. So I do think there's some things like that that could be really creative in a city like this, where you've got people living here and they can make an easy switch like that if the company would agree to make an investment.
0: Well, and, and two thoughts. One, I bet most nonprofits, our friends in this space, don't have a cybersecurity policy, and perhaps they should put that on their to-do list for you know strategic planning and so forth. And as you said, grant funders are going to probably start requiring some of that. And I would think, Holly, more and more just individual donors are going to say, how, how do I know you can take care of my information?
1: I think right? that's right. I think you're going to see it from the government eventually. I think you're going to see it from corporations first, than the government than individuals that's that's what i would say so you'll start to see these things pop up on 990s you know in other places um and so and the the, that's okay you know having these this question set or whatever is one thing but actually having the discipline on a day-to-day week-to-week month-to-month basis to do the things you know is tougher and and so the reason i mentioned it to you is not so much as a this is what people should be doing, but it's a concern I have because capacity is so stretched already at so many of these institutions. And you find that, again, if we go back to my original comment of what are corporations and individuals funding, yep. and if they have a mindset of funding a program, a program does not cover cybersecurity infrastructure costs. And so the concern I have is building the business case for a broader set of support that allows for capacity and infrastructure to be built in this space.
0: Yeah, well put. Uh, and speaking of infrastructure and capacity, you have had to grow E4E in a remarkably fast fashion. It illustrates the uh, global need for the service you're offering. And I guess, Holly, it has put you front and center in terms of team building. You have had to quickly build a dynamic team and and grow it very quickly. I wonder, are there lessons From that experience. And of course, you've built teams over the course of your career. What are some of the key elements as you look for talent? What are you doing? How do you do that most effectively?
1: Yeah, this has been a huge source of my time the last year for sure, if not the last year and a half. But as you noted, I spent a lot of time at the foundation in the old role that I had building the team, the advancement, legal, and investment team there. And I really love the teams, and they're really the primary reason I'm. I'm still there cuz the people at those organizations are so wonderful and I would say that you know if I think you, your question forced me to sort of step back and say well what 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 did we do or what did I do and I think exactly. this idea of building a strong personal network ends up being self-generative you know and that working time on that network meeting people for coffees talking with them about foundations talking with them about what they want to do has proven over and over again to bear fruit you know, not only in them, but people they refer on. So I think we we have a culture of um, connection at the organization that I work for. And we're fortunate in this community and I think a lot of places to have, a, you know, a growing millennial network of people who are interested in foundation work and want to learn learn more about it. I think, you know, I always look for demonstrated excellence and subject matter expertise for whatever the role is, but I'm really a big believer in hiring the right person and that their talents and skills will emerge over time and they will be in the right role wherever that is. I think you talk a lot about um, agility, you know, and, and being ready for change. And I think if you hire the right people, then they will have the soft skills and other types of skills necessary for the work as it evolves, and you know it, that in its in and of itself requires some trust in both, you know, your hiring manager, your leader, and the organization to know where they stand as the organization evolves. You know, I think you've talked about e4e's fast growth trajectory, and I think we're we're essentially a, a startup social enterprise, and that is our goal is to grow quickly. I think the foundation's growth was much more uh, steady over a a long period of time right and in both cases this idea of um agile you know soft skilled folks with key deep dives into subject matter expertise have been uh, real winners for the organization
0: Uh, and i want to underscore how skillfully you have been constantly looking at talent I tell nonprofit leaders all the time, you know, don't wait until you have a vacancy to connect with people, right, because right. your network paid off right when you needed it to. Right. And, and, and that's connect smart. With
1: people before COVID. I I was doing at least between one and three coffees a week with people who wanted to get into foundation work or were trying to make a transition or were just interested in what we were doing. And I would say that that allowed, you know when you're going from you know about I don't know 35 people to 150 people in only a very limited number of months that proves to be extremely helpful you know my gosh about who you've met with and where they might be a fit or where their friend might be a fit you know so going back out and asking people uh hey we have roles and you know pat and you and i over the years have talked about that you know i'll say to you hey i you know i think i might have this thing coming up you know exactly you know so we all We all talk to each other in that way. And I would say, you know, the same is true for board members. You know, we have a lot of board member slots to fill around at the organization, uh, both foundation and E4E. There's multiple subsidiaries at the foundation. There's the foundation board, there are committees, there's E4E's board. And I think same conceptually, we're we're matrixing out, if you will, the type of talent that's necessary for the uniqueness of that entity. And then going and trying to network and find people that match up to that, to that talent set.
0: Yeah, I love that. And of course, it leads to multiple questions. You've got me, my wheels turning. First of all, do you kind of consciously categorize all these networking meetings so that? No, words, I'm impressed. You're doing three a week. And I'm thinking a nonprofit leader is like, yeah, I could do more networking. Do, do you keep track uh, of some of these folks so that a year from now, when you're looking for someone, h- how do you literally manage the database that is strategic networking?
1: Well, I'd love to tell you that I have a really organized way of doing that, but <laughs> I don't. I'll just think back and say, oh, I remember that person, and it's it's time right. because we haven't. And I, you know, um, sometimes I go back and. Um, Search my calendar for, you know, for (laughs) the name where I was meeting them. But uh, it it was funny. I I had an email from a a friend. I was introduced to this woman this last week, and she is the best friend of someone that works at the foundation. Right. And she said, I want you to meet her because she has this interesting skill set and she wants to move to Charlotte. She's moved to Charlotte and she's new to town. So I email her and I find out that I met with her 10 years ago
0: prior to
1: her going to law school. So she's since that time, she's graduated from Wake, gone to law school, worked in New York City, and has moved back to town and is ready to talk again. You know, and I just thought that was so funny. Of course, I did not remember that I had met her, (laughs) but she knew exactly, you know, that we had met, you know, which was just really cool. So.
0: Well, again, kudos to you. And I just, I think that's such a good, uh, it has legitimate payoff. Obviously it's good for the folks that are seeking professional development from you, but you know, I'm thinking myself of just making even one or two notes in my contacts to help prompt that memory. Because, like you, I'm losing track <laughs> at an increasing pace of some of these connections. But it does pay off, and that's I'm glad what you're underscoring. And let me ask you something else, because you've had to be a shrewd judge of talent, and and I think you said it well that the job descriptions you're hiring now may evolve very quickly. How do you? evaluate the agility. You mentioned that as a key skill. You want them to be subject matter experts. I guess you want them to be lifelong learners. Are there certain things that you kind of use to help evaluate those characteristics? I would,
1: you know, I, I would say that I've been thinking about this a lot lately because we're under so much change and we're looking for so many folks, or who have been. And I was thinking about that at the foundation over that longer period. And, you know, what used to be, we would hire, I would say amusing, you know, putting quotes around these things, but we would hire generalists, right? Smart folks who yeah, could know, yep, move yep. around, do the thing. You know, we didn't need like true deep subject matter expertise in a lot of areas in the earlier stages. You could dabble around in it and get, you know, hire externally for for your subject matter expertise and move on. And I would say that as the organization became larger and more institutional and more complex, the idea of being generalists had to be, um, you know, you had to bring in the subject matter experts with the generalists. Right. And so in thinking about that, you know, people will migrate, I think, to what they're good at doing or what they want to be doing. So you're talking about how that sort of, skillful analysis, if you will, of what they're, but they themselves will go there. They will tell you. about That's, what they do You wait there.
0: for that almost. And you're I, waiting for that answer. You, yeah. I'm
1: waiting for it. And, and yeah. I think that comes from this generalist idea where I'm, you know, we're going to put you in, in a mode where you, where you're doing some relationships, some development, some technical, some finance, some grant making. That's kind of what a community foundation is. Right. Yes. And then you find yes. over time that somebody will, will lean into, you know, two two of those things and not all 10 of those things, you know, and so that's what's been harder about building the network at E4E is that E4E is a technology solution-based, you know, product, if you will, or program. And that technical piece of it requires subject matter expertise much earlier than, than what we've invested in at FFTC in the earlier years, if that makes sense
0: totally and again as a parent of recent college graduates I'm taking notes because I want my kids to be uh, very uh, able to articulate exactly what you said and I just think that is the future of every sector right nonprofit for-profit and community foundation everything in between so I'm glad you Seems kind of like articulate it the rate
1: that. that things are evolving exactly
0: you know? exactly you've got to be kind of nimble and agile as you put it. Speaking of a sector that has had, had its challenges, and you've been in the middle of community philanthropy for a long time, uh, and you know of some of the challenges uh, community campaigns like United Way have struggled. I, I wonder what are what are your take on that, or what is your take on that, and where do you see those kind of efforts going?
1: The you know, the future of community campaigns continues to evolve to me, and and there are disparate Desperate winners in that, in the sense that United Way worldwide has been working hard to develop technology to digitize workplace giving to, to facilitate these community campaigns, you know, to compete with what are now really fairly large technology companies that have gotten into the space. And I think what that has created is an opportunity on the ground, you know, for local United Ways to look at their models and make more what I would call surgical moves to address key issues in the community. Right. So if you look at United Way here in Charlotte, they've done a great job on targeted initiatives like the COVID-19 response fund or their neighborhood work. And those are not things that can be scaled and done, you know, as as a technology solution, you know, right. out in the ethernet. So it does seem to me that the idea of community means that a community still has to own and and operate its own Functions, but it probably is supported by shared services and technology that more, more than that community use. Right. You know, so but, I think I see a need for the community effort, the federated effort right. uh, on the ground, but I also see an opportunity for local United Ways to leverage some things because it's so hard, you know, like our earlier conversation around cyber, it's so hard for everybody to do their own investments their own capital investments and kind of go their own way. Um, And yet it's also, it's also hard to share and to partner, you know, so.
0: Yeah. It's a tug of war there. And, but you think less generalist community campaigns, campaigns like that are going to have to be focused? That's what
1: I was thinking. I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I like this idea of, I mean, I think this, this more surgical effort where you're really leveraging the expertise on the ground, you know, the needs of the players on the ground. And the reality is what Mm -hmm. our needs are in Charlotte are not what someone's needs are in Houston or in Phoenix. They they are different communities. They have different issues. I'm sure there's quite a bit of overlap on the one hand. Um, On the other hand, I do think there are some unique things about Charlotte. And I think all of the work we've all been doing around economic opportunity and economic mobility for the last several years would say that Charlotte's in a different place than somebody like Phoenix. Yes. On some of these issues. And so the United Way here is going to take a very different tack to their, you know, neighborhood work as an example, you know, versus uh, another United Way, um, but I think if you look at uh, the same thing, it's true with the arts, you know, campaigns and other things. It's what are the efforts that are relevant here, and what are the leanings that you know we need to have to to make these things function well.
0: Uh, spoken like a true fundraiser, even if that's not always been in your job description, your your articulation of what I would call you know sharpening your case for support, right? It's not right. a general unrestricted appeal. Organizations, including these community uh, efforts, have to be precise, I guess, in their effort. It seems,
1: yeah, it seems like this idea of you know everything being customized everywhere, you know, has just bled into this space. I mean, I I was yep. on um, Facebook yesterday and saw that. You can customize your Oreo now. Have you seen this? (laughs) I'm
0: scared to ask you. Please tell.
1: Actually customize an Oreo. You can pick the inside color of it. You can dip it in something. You can roll it around in sprinkles. You can have a picture um, imprinted (laughs) on it and you can have it mailed.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And I mean, to me, if, if we're all using our mobile phones and ordering up things like this, and that is the level of customization that we all have for whatever yeah. we have on a daily basis, this idea of general, general community is still necessary and needed for yeah. sure. Yeah. But, but it's, it's somehow you something. lost, you know, right. it's harder to make the case, but, but we should make the case and we should have it. I mean, I, 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 am a believer that the, the community piece, I think is going to come back around because it's right. not going to be any way to get the work done. <laughs> you well know?
0: put well put. And well, and and shifting gears slightly to staying in the fundraising space, you've had to raise money yourself. You've been around a lot of good fundraisers. Um, what are the characteristics of the best fundraisers, which of course is a skill every nonprofit leader is having to contemplate?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the best fundraisers, I would say like strategist meets relationship builder meets implementation specialist. That's what I would say.
0: It's a good equation.
1: I think we have a lot of great fundraisers in town and the ones that I observe that are the strongest have really strong networks and relationship with donors, but they spend an awful lot of time ensuring that the institutions that they work for and they themselves honor promises and steward those relationships well. So they, you know, you might not be the one to do it, but you have built a team to ensure that these functions are happening, you know, and there are, regular um and ordinary means of thanking people touching base etc i think what you see a little bit less of is the strategist piece right Um, so to me the best ones have all three of these things they have probably their strategist and relationship builder and then they've built a team to make sure that we're you know they're delivering on this stewardship proposition all the time
0: love that equation holly i think it's a good self-assessment as i listen to you and others listening to this episode. Yeah, how would they rate themselves in terms of strategy, relationship building, and I guess that implementation or stewardship? Because I would suggest a lot of our friends maybe are good at two of the three, but not all three. And that is what you're suggesting is, in essence, the perfect fundraising combination.
1: I think so, but I, you know, I don't, who knows?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're going to add a caveat to your equation. Uh, nah. I think your caveat is right on target, actually. <laughs> but Holly, I guess a couple more comments I wanted to seek from you. Uh, And you've talked about the, again, you've had to manage an organization through remarkable change, rapid change. And and that's frankly going to be true for everybody. Um, What are the best corporate or nonprofit leaders doing to adapt? Are you seeing certain characteristics there that maybe suggest they're going to be more able to move forward?
1: You know, I think after the past two years, like we have all adapted to change, right? And we I think everybody expects to continue to have to do so. You and know, I've talked on this podcast about recruiting and hiring around the concept of adaptability. Right. And you know, us asking at both FFTC and e 4 for examples in prior roles around adapt adaptability. And talking through those and seeing how people relate to examples we provide about things that have happened in our organization, and I think um, when we talk about this with the team, we talk about also this idea of you think about change, you think about uncertainty, right? And you, that I, I don't know what's happening to me or to the organization. And so this idea of of managing to a problem set, and I think one of the things I did this last year, there were. A tremendous number of problems you can't go you know 14 times the volume you had and 52 times the international volume you had without problems and there Good were a grief lot
0: of yes and
1: so when we talk about it when we talked about those problems and they were frequent we also said i want to see the solution the potential solutions when we talk about the problems because i think when you it's easy to get focused on what happened in the past or what problems exist when you're dealing with constant change. But I like the idea of focusing on the future, you know, and how we're going to adapt to do things differently because I think it's, you know, it allows for people not dwelling on the thing that they might be worried about, but but also kind of lets people move into the next realm and move into problem solving mode, which to me is the best way as a team to handle change.
0: I love that. And I you know I guess in, in a tactical sense, so when we debrief something, you know, particularly one something that didn't go well, you're putting on the agenda. But we're not just coming here to debrief what went wrong. I, I want to hear solutions. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that is uh, to me one of the things a leader could do in any sector, but nonprofit in particular is put that kind of psychology to every meeting agenda. What are we going to talk about here? And then more importantly, what are we going to do to make it better, or fix it, or improve? and that is good advice for sure. Um, Holly, this has been fantastic. And uh, gosh, I've got a page full of notes in, in any number of categories. And speaking of those coffees that you had and continue to have, I bet you get a lot of this question. Hey, Holly, I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit or nonprofit leadership or something like that. Uh, I wonder how do you respond to someone or is there any particular advice you offer when that question is posed?
1: Well, I say, you know, that it, for me, it's been such a great field to be in and build a career in. And I have, you know, this is not just a, just a, a job for me, but it's certainly, um, it's a life, you know, and and that's not necessarily something everybody wants, but I will say there's just a lot of gratification in, in having worked with so many different players in the community for so many years and building a network and finding peers in the field field with whom I could commiserate. So if I were going to offer any kind of advice i would just say that and it seems to be a theme through the discussion today building the network and finding people in the field with that you can rely on you know other other people if you're running programs that run programs or other fundraisers or other finance professionals or other ceos to to lean into um, what they might have to offer and i think in an ever-changing world you know where we all need to be adaptable and think about the next thing it's always helpful to have that group of people that you can rely on, you know, and I think, you know, Patton, you're you're one of those people for me in terms of building a network over, over the years and thinking things through and talking about what's going on in the community. So I think I find a lot, you know, I don't have to see those folks every day, but knowing that they're there and being able to talk to people is good. I also think that um, keeping and building your functional and technical skills you know, is good. We talked about graduate education earlier, right? I say that because nonprofits need all the same capacities that exist in the corporate realm. And there's more pressure than ever to attract and retain talent in the field, you know, in the world that we're living in right now. And so thinking about how you can continue to sharpen that while you're building your network to me is the best way to give you the most flexibility to be in for-profit or nonprofit, you know, going forward.
0: Such good advice, Holly. Um, this, the direct and indirect value of strategic networking, of course, the feeling is mutual. You and I've had conversation over the years that add value to my thinking every time. And just this ability to continue to learn, you know, I think sometimes historically we think, all right, well, I've got my degree or I've got my certification, but your points well taken. We, we should always be looking for the next set of learnings or certifications or whatever. And cause it's going to be necessary. And that's such a good way to put it. I can only imagine how many books you've had to read, how many textbooks you've had to study as you've gone through your various graduate education programs and everything else in your world. Is there one book, however, Holly, that you might recommend to our listeners that maybe has been meaningful to you, or you would recommend to a nonprofit leader?
1: Well, I will. I'll. I'll be honest on one hand and tell you what I'm doing on the other. So, you know, through (laughs) something like COVID and and all of the work associated with it, you're not really Putting in long hours reading because they just uh, right. unless you're doing it at four in the morning they aren't there. Right. But I would say I I have emerged um, from that uh, in the last little bit, and I am reading a book right now that I love, and it also comes with a podcast series if you like podcasts, and I know you like. Podcasts. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm listening for sure now.
1: Yeah, um, but it's called Masters of Scale, and it's by LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman. And he interviews the CEOs of some of the world's largest or, or most interesting startups and talks about what made them successful and points out areas of focus. And you know, since we think of E4E Relief as a social enterprise startup that offers charitable solutions that are based in technology, the thinking from these types of startups from Silicon Valley and other leaders is helpful and re- and relatable for me right now. Um, there are quite a few nonprofit and social enterprise examples in the book, and he draws linkages between the nonprofit and for-profit scaling. So I just think there's all kinds of interesting tidbits if you're an organization that's trying to grow, you know, and, and any any organization to me, uh, nonprofit or for-profit has the same types of issues when they're trying to scale.
0: Uh, it's fantastic. And so I'm grateful for both an audio and a reading recommendation. Yeah, And, and a, I have read some of there. Yeah, that's fantastic. So great
1: for walking the dog or whatever. Like, <laughs> exactly. Somewhere, I, it's, it's been really helpful and, and kind of fun. What another thing that's fun about it is that my my parents bought bought the book for me. Uh, read about it in the Wall Street Journal and bought the book for me and gave it to me. And, and I just kind of picked it up and started reading. It. I couldn't put it down.
0: So hey, that's, that's a fun. strong recommendation for sure. Well, Holly, we will add that. Uh, Among many other nuggets of wisdom from this conversation, in the show notes related to this episode. And of course, we'll put ways to get in touch with you. But tell us, you know, where would you like folks to find out more about you and the great work you're doing in particular with E4E? Well,
1: we've got um, our website is really evolving and we've got a lot of impact stories and some research that we've been doing in sort of proprietary impact research on grants to individuals. And we have all of that on our website, at least the the public-facing pieces, pieces of it. And so that's employeerelieffund.org. And so, you know, really appreciate Patton being with you uh, and for your work in the sector all these years and our um, friendship, and pleased that you asked me to be here today.
0: Uh, Holly, excited to share this. Thank you again for your time and for joining me on the path. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Holly as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can not only guide your professional journey in nonprofit leadership, but enhance your understanding of corporate philanthropy in particular. Don't forget to check out the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. In fact, check out the new and improved podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com where you can find evidence of not just this episode, number 134 with Holly, but also the 133 previous episodes and the great conversations and resources they provide. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with one other person on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Go to that same podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll see the follow button in the top right corner, and that'll get you to any of the podcast platforms, including YouTube you might want to consume episodes like this one. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, and I hope you will have the opportunity to stay with us and hear some great episodes coming up throughout the remainder of 2021. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.